0: Today we are carrying on with our calling and gifting stuff. We've been looking at for quite a while now on Sundays and life groups. And I know some of you are sitting there and you're like, Grant, I'm really grateful that this is the last week of the series because we've got it by now. We're all called, we're all gifted, we're all ministers, we all have a role to play in the church. We all have some unique ministry God has given us to build up one another in a group of people like this. But my hope is at the end of this series that what will happen is not just that we know this stuff, that we kind of know the gifts of 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4 and wherever else it might be, but that actually we would know the gifts God has given us and we would use them to build one another up, to find fulfillment for ourselves and to glorify God. That really is my hope. So one of the ways we're actually going to kind of do this and fan this into flame in our own church is next week we've got five people sharing, got four preachers and one interview. They're prepped. I listened to three of the sermons this week. They are really, really ready to roll. It's going to be a very good Sunday, so I'd love you to be here next week for that. But actually, we want to see the gifts of this church used more and more, and actually people growing and like stepping out in faith to trust God with their own gifts. So today, we're going to speak about using and developing our own gifts. I know there was one or two big sporting things in the news this last week, but something you might have missed was that Tiger Woods, at the age of 43, won his 82nd PGA Tour title to equal the all-time record set by Sam Snead, one of my personal heroes, many years ago. But um, I don't know if you know his story. Sam, uh, Sorry, not Sam. What's the other guy's name? Tiger. Tiger, from a young age, has been groomed and prepared by his father, Earl Woods, to really be the person that he is today. At the age of six months old, Tiger could balance on his dad's hand as he walked around the house. I don't really know how that helps with golf, but maybe from like a, just a, a natural athletic ability it speaks out. At seven months, his father gave him a putter to play around with. A little tiger carried that with him everywhere he went in his little circular baby walker. At 10 months of age, he climbed down from his baby chair, and he picked up the little golf club his dad had had kind of sawn down for him that he could use, And he imitated the swing that he had seen his dad making in the garage so many times, sitting there in the kitchen, just swinging again and again and preparing. And because he was so young, at 10 months, his dad couldn't really communicate with him and teach him how to play golf. He would literally draw these little pictures of like a golf handle and how to put your hands and how to play. Tiger was like really into it from a very young age. At the age of two, Tiger went on national television and he drove a ball using a club just kind of showing off his skill. And then later that year, as a two-year-old, he entered his first competition and he won the under-10 division. Now, I want you to think about that for a second. He's two years old. There's nine-and-a-half-year-olds playing in this tournament and they get whipped by a little two-year-old who's still learning how to walk and talk and do all of these things. By three, he was working a how- out, how to hit a ball out of a sand twap, as his dad says. He was like being prepared and skilled in all of these things. And then at the age of four... His dad would drop him off at the golf course and leave him there for eight hours. No judgment. Like That's not what I would do as a parent, but that's what Earl did. And he would pick him up eight hours later, and often Tiger Woods would have hustled the other players at the club and would have made a whole bunch of money, which is absolutely incredible. You know, he'd bet them he could drive further than them or beat them at a game, and he'd come home rich. At eight, he beat his dad for the first time, and today he's one of, if not the greatest golfer the world has ever seen. Pretty amazing. His dad, Earl Woods, was his dad coach and mentor, and he's even written a book on how to develop the greatness in your child through deliberate practice and specialized training and skill development. It's called very cheesily, but it's kind of also cool, Training a Tiger. You saw that coming, huh? Now, I think in reality, very few prodigies like Tiger Woods have that kind of upbringing where from a young age, from six months of age, your parents kind of see the potential that's in you and are grooming you on this track to become a professional golfer like Tiger Woods had. And I'm not advocating that for the parents in the room. I don't think that's how Shell and I are going to raise our little girl. And probably for many kids who do have that kind of upbringing, there's almost like a revolt, you know? Actually, this is what we've experienced. We don't want that. You rebel against your parents. You drop out of this thing that you've been groomed for and you do your own thing. But for Tiger, this worked. And I think what I want to highlight here more than like the crazy outlier prodigy kind of person like him is that someone like Tiger Woods with such a pronounced and obvious gift still had to put in a lot of effort and energy and work to develop the gift that God had given him to become who he is today. And it really is the same with each of us, whether it's with our spiritual gifts or kind of natural abilities. The things that God has given to us and entrusted to us need effort and energy and training and trying and practicing so that we can grow up to use them in a healthy and effective way. So if you've got a Bible, can you turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1 with me? We're going to read the first 11 verses together. This is Paul the Apostle speaking to his kind of son in the faith, Timothy, and grooming and preparing him to use his gifts and to live out his call. And Paul starts and he says this in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. I just want to pause there before we kind of go on to the gifting stuff. According to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. I just want to highlight that for a second, because if you are here today and you are searching for the life that is truly life, if you are searching for meaning or for answers, if you're searching for peace or hope or joy, if you're looking for satisfaction or pleasure, if you're looking for love or approval or acceptance, if you're trying to work out what life is all about and wondering why there's like this existential need inside of you, I want to say that Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the one who meets that need. And there are many men and women in this room who have experienced that for themselves. There is a promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. And if you have not experienced that before, you can step into and walk into that this morning. So Paul carries on and says to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. I would love us to become that kind of church, a church that is praying for each other night and day. As someone pops into your mind or on your heart, as the Spirit brings them to remembrance, that actually we're praying for one another. We're texting and encouraging one another. Just in practical and basic ways, we're thinking, how can I build up this group of people? I pray for you night and day. And then he says, as I remember your tears. Timothy was a bit of a crier. I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith. Timothy's a man of sincere faith that first dwelt in your grandmother, Lois, and your mother, Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light, through the good news, through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher. That's an amazing passage of scripture. So I'm going to briefly just start with Paul, Paul's calling, which is where this passage starts. And I know we've spoken about this a little bit in the book of Acts and even in the series. But in verse 1, Paul says, I am an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. If you drop down to verse 11, he carries on and says, basically because of the gospel, I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher. And I want you to see this as we carry on. Paul knows who he is. He knows how God has gifted him. He knows the role that he's called to play in the church and he knows his gifts. Paul is sure of those things and so can you be. And what I love about Paul is that he is giving his life. He's laying down his life to build up the church, to honor God and to see someone like Timothy encouraged in his faith. A guy named Tony Merida writing on this passage says, Paul's apostleship was not owing to anything in and of himself. I would hate any of us to think here, well, I've got these gifts, but if I was better or if I did more or if I whatever, dot, 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 if I filled this gap, then God would bless me with greater gifts. That's not what's going on. We do not earn these gifts. We do not deserve these gifts. These are gifts of grace given to us. He states that his position was established by God's will. Paul did not volunteer for it. He was summoned to it. He did not make a career move. He was appointed. And similarly, God appoints and calls each one of us in this room and assigns us to specific tasks that he's got for us to do. And if you're here today, I want to encourage you to be prayerfully seeking God on what that looks like for you. What is your call? What is your role? What is your gift? How do you build up this church? And seeking an answer because God wants you to be able to answer that question. Do you know what it is and are you walking in it? The last thing I'll say about Paul is Paul is a courageous man. Like if you read through this chapter, you see Paul's courage to lay down his life for God. He literally is willing to die. And he's writing this from a prison where he's on death row waiting to be executed. This is the last letter it is believed that Paul wrote before he was martyred for his faith in Jesus. So he's writing to Timothy, encouraging him to think big picture to live with eternity in mind because it's so easy for all of us in this room to get distracted by all that is going on in Durban and all that's going on in our lives and forget the priorities and things God wants us to highlight and just live in a small world when God is calling us to live with eternity in mind, the rest of time in mind. And Paul is writing this to Timothy because he's in a very different headspace. Paul is setting him an example of how he should also live. And now Paul loves Timothy. He says in chapter one, verse two, to Timothy, my beloved child. And throughout the scriptures we see, Paul calls him his son. He's a spiritual son to him. Now at this point, they've known each other for about 17 years. They've traveled the Roman empire together. They've planted churches together. They fought battles together. They've done big things for God together. 17 years of history. And Timothy is not just like a work colleague or a ministry friend to him. He loves him. They're, they're brothers. It's a father-son kind of relationship. And probably Paul has mentored him and trained him this whole time. And about five years before this point, Paul has actually installed. He he laid his hands on Timothy and installed him as the lead pastor of the church in Ephesus, which they believe at the time was the biggest church in the world. So Paul trusted in this young man. He believed in him and he'd given him this responsibility or God had given him this responsibility to lead. And even in Philippians 2.20, we see what Paul says of him. He says, I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. I don't know if you've got anyone in your life who says, I've got no one like them. They're they're the best. They're they're my right-hand man. I trust them more than anyone else. They are absolutely incredible. I've got no one like Timothy. But Paul also has some reality checks with Timothy. In this first chapter that we've already looked at, he says, Timothy's tearful. He's fearful. And he's probably a bit ashamed of the gospel and even a bit ashamed of Paul. Judging by these words, and if we were to go through kind of one and two Timothy and the context going on there, it doesn't seem like Timothy's a spiritual rock. Timothy is physically weak, he's timid, he's young and experienced. But what I love about God is that God loves to use the weak, he loves to use the ordinary. He loves to empower things that don't look special from the outside to display his power through our lives. I think that should encourage every single one of us in this room. I think the reality is we've all got some gifts and strengths. I hope that you've been able to list them and think through them in the series. But we've also all got some weaknesses and insecurities and fears. Some things that we need to overcome and deal with in our lives. And that's kind of what Paul is talking about here. If you've ever held back because of an insecurity or a fear, if you've ever known what God has wanted you to do and not done it, if you've ever backed down or not stepped out in faith, then this is kind of you that he's speaking to. You and Timothy would make good friends because he's on the same page as that. And what I love about God is that this kind of failing, insecurity, mess-ups, whatever it is, that doesn't disqualify us. God wants you and he wants to use you and he's pursuing you. But Paul looks at Timothy and he is concerned about him. Timothy's got a lot going for him, you know. Timothy's been mentored by Paul, which is maybe Paul's way of blowing his own horn, you know, just saying, look at me, I mentored Timothy. On top of that, he's been raised in a godly home. His grand and his mother love Jesus. Some of us in this room have had that. Many of us haven't. But he's grown up in a home with these Christian examples and mentors and people who've been able to encourage him in the faith. On top of that, he's gifted and called by God. On top of that, he's been filled by the Spirit. He's got all of this going for him. And even, like, Paul trusts him so much that he would give him the responsibility of leading the biggest church in the world at that time. Timothy had a lot going for him, but still, still, he feels insecure, shy, timid, and too young. He was disqualifying himself and holding himself back from what God was wanting to do. With his life. And what Paul is saying to him in this passage is the gifts that God has given to you are in danger of kind of growing cold or going blunt or being neglected or going into disrepair. That's the big idea in this passage. You see, God had provided all of these things for Timothy. But he, like each one of us, had the responsibility of using and developing and growing his gifts to be used for God's purposes. So what does Paul write to him to encourage him? 2 Timothy 1 verse 6. He says, for this reason. Now I did this this week. If you go from verse 1 to 11 and just highlight every time the gospel pops up, it's almost in every single verse. He's saying, for this reason, because of the glory of God and how beautiful God is, because of his incredible love and grace towards us, because he gave his son Jesus on the cross to die for our sins, that we could be forgiven and washed clean and our sin and shame and guilt lifted off of us and given a new life and set free from the things that hold us back. Because Jesus loves us and has helped us to come into the life that is truly life. Because we've experienced all of these things and know how good they are. Because of all of that, fan into flame the gift of God that is in you. That's what Paul is writing and saying to him. Fan into flame the gift of God. Now there's two parts to this command. There's two parts that we want to go through today. The first is that you and I are each called to take responsibility for our own gifting and calling. That's on us. God has given it to us. We can encourage one another. But really what we do with the call and the gift of God is up to each one of us. As we've said over the series, if you haven't gotten this by now, I don't know how we're going to get it through to you. But everyone in this church is gifted by God. You might have one gift or two gifts. You might have five or ten gifts. Whatever it is, they might be big or small. We are all gifted by God. And even those of us who have neglected the gifts God has given us, and they've kind of shrunk down to these little embers in our lives that are still burning but are like on teetering on the edge of going out, we are still gifted. And what Paul is saying to Timothy here is even those little embers that you've got have got potential to be activated and used by God to do huge things. So what I did this week, a little preaching hack, is I Googled, how do you get embers burning? Because obviously I know really well, but I thought I'd like the scientific detail. So I found this article that popped up called Why Embers Cause the Most Damage in Wildfires. And it said this, an ember is a small glowing piece of superheated wood, coal, or other material that remains after or sometimes precedes a fire. Embers can glow as hot as the fire from which they arise and are light enough to be carried by the wind for long distances without being extinguished. They're the primary reason properties go up in flames whenever a wildfire is nearby. A little ember can have a huge effect. It goes on, and it uses this phrase I love, an event known as an ember attack commonly occurs during brush fires. It causes burning parts of branches or leaves to become airborne and fly off as a large cluster of glowing embers. Not only can these embers be carried to the outside of your property, but they can make contact with the inside by floating through vents, windows, or crawl spaces. And as a result, they can ignite any and all flammable objects you own, including the house itself. Little embers are very powerful in and of themselves. Even if the gift you have got is something that you've neglected for years, you've ignored and haven't used and haven't developed, it's still there. And little embers can make a huge difference in a church like this. I'm sure there's one or two people in this room who bride a little bit today. Hope you had a good bourgeois roll or a steak or a chop or whatever it was. But when you're getting that fire going, or maybe when the fire's dying down and you want to get it going again, you do that kind of typical South African thing, you know, you get generally it's the charcoal box and you kind of stand there and you, you know, you kind of blow, you blow on it. And then you kind of wave your little box or piece of paper to get that thing glowing and burning better and better. And really, that's what Paul is talking about. That is his big idea in this sermon. Fan into flame. Wave that charcoal box in, or not charcoal box, fire out a box. Get that thing going. And it really requires only a few simple things. There's intentionality. This fire's going out, someone needs to start it, I'm going to blow and I'm going to kind of fan this fire. Requires a little bit of effort, just a small bit of it. You know, this isn't going to exhaust you, you're not going to need to have a nap after this, just a little bit of effort. It's a bit of a process because this does take some time, sometimes more than others, to get that fire going and finally, that oxygen that you've been kind of fanning into the fire catalyzes the flames and they start to pop up again. That's what Paul's speaking about here and what he's calling each of us to. Paul wants us to fan into flame the gifts of God that are inside of us. And the Greek word, therefore, kind of fan into flame, is anasopurio. It's this present tense idea that we fan into flame and we keep fanning into flame. Keep fanning into flame the gift of God that is in you. And some of us have done this in the past. There was a season or a time in our lives where we fanned into flame the gifts, we used the gifts, and now it's been a while and we need to do this again. This is an ongoing process, it's not exhausting. By the grace and power of the Holy Spirit, we fan into flame these gifts. The second big idea in this passage is that these gifts are given to us by God. And maybe that seems obvious, but that does show us the value of these gifts. I don't know if you've ever had this. Um, I think we have. I won't go into the details. I'm sure some of you have too. But you are given something valuable for your home by either your parents or like a boss or an authority figure or even worse, your in-laws, and you don't like it, like a vase or a painting or a little ornament or something. It's given to you with great love, and you go, ah, we don't want to put this on display in our home. So what happens is you put that in the cupboard for 99% of the time, and when that family member or boss or whoever it is that you don't want to let down comes around, you go, let's quickly put this out, put it on display so that everyone can see that we love this thing they've given us. And we do that because we don't want to hurt their feelings. We do that because we know to them this is a very valuable thing and an important thing, and we want this to be on display so that they feel loved and not hurt. That's what we do with the bad or ugly gifts. How much worse is it with the good gifts that God gives us if we just kind of put them away in the cupboard? You know, God who knows you better than anyone and wants the best for you more than anyone else in the world has hand-picked specific gifts and put them in your life He's given you abilities and a way of seeing things that actually you would display his glory and build others up. And how hurt must he be when we take those things that he has uniquely widened to us and we just kind of hide them away so that no one sees them. In 1 Timothy 4.14, Paul writes again to Timothy in a different letter to him and says, do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Now, most commentators think these two passages are talking about the same event, probably a moment where Paul and the elders laid hands on Timothy and installed him as the lead elder of the church in Ephesus. A moment of prayer, it was a moment of anointing, it was a moment of gifts being given. But here in these two verses, we almost see a positive and a negative way of looking at this. The positive is fan into flame the gift of God. It's an encouragement. The negative is a challenge. Don't neglect the gift of God that is in you. Don't neglect your gift. Don't waste it. Don't hide it away. And we probably all have stories of neglecting gifts. When I was thinking about this, um, I chatted to Brent, and uh, we were talking about kids being given a bicycle. You know, this is like a stereotypical thing to me, which he said, like, it's just true in his home. You know, kids want a bicycle, a new responsibility, and you buy that for them for their birthday or for Christmas or whatever it is, and you say, listen, you need to take care of your bike. You know, if you leave it outside, if you leave it on the grass, if it gets dew on it, if it goes in the pool, this bike is going to rust and you won't be able to use it anymore. And then what happens after a couple of weeks or months is that bike gets left outside on the grass in the dew for a couple of days, and it won't pedal anymore, and it won't turn anymore, and it basically needs to be thrown away. Paul's saying that to us. Don't neglect the gift of God that has been given to you. Don't leave it out there in the rain. Don't leave it out there in the dew, because you won't be able to use it anymore. Fan it into flame. Let that gift develop and grow so that it can bless many people. I guess for some of us, we are wanting to grow in this. You're hearing about this for the first time today, and you're saying, I'm in. I want to fan into flame my gift. Some of us have stopped this. We're in the neglect space. We've been neglecting the gifts of God. And I want to say why. Why do we stop using the gifts God has given us? I think for some of us, it could be distraction. Life is busy. Got lots going on, got lots on our minds, and we get distracted from what God has called us to and how He wants to use us. Or maybe it's discouragement, like you actually have stepped out a couple of times, you've tried to use these gifts, and it's gone badly. People have told you you missed it, you you failed, you felt embarrassed, and you've stopped. Maybe it's like a kind of dislike of the gifts God has given you. That actually you look around the church and you look at some people and you go, I wish I had their call. Wish I had their gift. I really love how God is using them and how he's wired them. I don't like what he's done in me. And because of that, we try and hide or pretend with someone that we're not. Or maybe it's a fear. I feel like this stood out to me as I was preparing it. A fear of failing. Maybe you're a perfectionist who doesn't want to try just in case you get it wrong and you don't do it perfectly. Or maybe it's a fear of not doing well or a fear of looking like a fool. I'm sure probably most of us in this room can relate to that kind of thing not stepping out, not, not stepping out in faith, not trusting God because we don't want to mess it up. The very next verse in 2 Timothy 1, verse 7, says, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. And I want to encourage you this morning to not neglect the gift that is in you because of fear of it not going well. I want to encourage you to instead lean into and trust the Holy Spirit to empower you to use the gift, to put to death fear and to put to death those insecurities inside of you that we could all grow in these gifts and use them for his purposes. I think um, when I was sensing, I don't know, as a 20 year old or whatever, that God was calling me to be a pastor and a preacher and to be involved in church planning and any of that stuff, um, I honestly thought to myself, the only thing I've got to do is just get over my fear of public speaking. I can do that. I'm going to be home free, you know? So I've been leading for a while now, and I've learned there are some other challenges to this job, and there are some other areas where I need to kind of grow in courage. I'm sure any of you in leadership roles know that stuff too. But I remember getting up to speak or preach or lead something with this fear inside of me. You know, These nerves that you, you really want to do well. You want to honor God. You don't want to waste people's time. You, you want people to, I guess, grow and be encouraged through what you share. Also like a desire to look good. Like you do want to do this well. You know, you don't want to look like a fool up there. And I remember sometimes like palms would be sweaty. My knees would be shaking. You know, my heart would be racing before I got up there. Just overshare, but sometimes just upset stomach before coming. Just like really nervous about doing this whole thing and saying, but this is what God wants from me. So I'm willing to do it, you know, and it's gotten a lot easier over the years. Still get all of those symptoms from time to time. uh, And sometimes it's harder than others but it has gotten a lot easier. But I think this is not a lesson that we learn once and then we move past it. This lesson of not neglecting the gifts and overcoming fear and stepping into what God has got for us is something we're going to have to go through over and over and over again. I think after being a pastor for a few years and preaching for a few years and getting over most of that fear stuff, I remember speaking at Midrand at a conference and I was like one of the young guys they got up, you know, one of the young guys to share on some young topic, whatever it was, and there were about 200 guys in the room, and um, a lot of my heroes in the first couple of rows, and I remember the nerves of standing in front of a crowd was there, but probably more than I've ever felt that before, you know, I got up to speak, I'd been really nervous trying to psych myself up before, and I just had dry mouth, (laughs) I don't know if you've had that before, where like your gums and your lip are just sticking together, and I was like, oh, this isn't great, and I was breathing heavier than normal, which made my speaking sound a little bit strange, And I was up there, and honestly, it didn't go that badly. Someone did video it. I watched afterwards. It was fine. It wasn't a train wreck. But I thought it was going really badly while I was up there. And I had this inner dialogue going through my head where I was like, just just walk off stage. You don't have to do this. Like, you can shut this down right now. Do the people a favor. Do yourself a favor. It can all be over. And it really was fine. But I'm so grateful that I didn't let fear win in that moment, you know? I got through it. I kind of found my stride by the end of the 12 minutes or however long it was that I spoke for. But I was fanning into flame the gift and call of God in my life. And I think if I had bailed on that, like before I got on stage or on stage, whatever, how bruised I would have been and how hard it would have been for me to overcome the next obstacle or the next intimidating thing that I faced. I think it's the same for us. you know. If we let fear win in calling and gifting stuff, then we're never going to walk into the things God has got for us to do. I think the power may have gone out, but um, the power not gone out in God. Yeah, it was super cheesy, but I'm just freestyling now. Yeah, there we go. Sorry, come on. Um, but the reality is if we let fear win out, we will never walk into the call of God. Our gifts will never grow. We won't fan into flame that gift. We won't take risks. We won't take steps of faith. And we'll live a very safe life. I don't think any of us want that for ourselves because we're called into bold, faith-filled, spirit-led mission in this city, in this church. And there are some ways that you and I, just by fanning into flame those little embers, could speak words or do things that change people's lives forever. You and I have not been gifted to impress God or to impress one another. I would hate you to leave this series and think, okay, I've got to do this so that the church thinks I'm great. No, we don't have to impress anyone because the God of the universe is already impressed with us. He already loves you and accepts you and approves of you. You're not trying to find your identity through your gifting or your calling or your work or your ministry or any of those things because our identity is in Him. He already looks at each one of us and says, you are my son, my daughter, who I love, with whom I'm well pleased. Not based on what we do, it's based on who we are in Jesus. Don't use these things to find identity or success. Find that from Him. In 2 Timothy 1 verse 6, Paul says, for this reason I remind you, not your spouse or your friend or a leader or a boss or a parent or a mentor. I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God. And what happens if we don't fan into flame that gift? The fire dies down again. The fire that was inside of our lives becomes a little ember. It doesn't give off much light or much heat. And eventually that goes out completely and nothing happens. And how easy is it for us to let that happen in our lives? Lots in our minds, lots in our hearts, lots going on. Busy life, distracted lives. Letting timidity, fear, and insecurity win out. To let tiredness or offense at what someone has said or done or not said or done. Or excuses stop us from ministering to one another. And the gifts of God inside of us build up and strengthen this community of people when you or I don't fan into flame the gift of God, it's not just that we're robbing ourselves, we're robbing the community. Because your gifts haven't been given to you just for you. They've been given to you for us. So can I call us to hear what Jesus is saying to us through his words here, and fan into flame the gift of God that is in you. Don't neglect your gift, but use it for his glory, for your fulfillment, and for our benefits. Would you guys stand and pray with me?